history, Rabbi Blyweiss, session number 106. Uh, we're going to meet a number of Gedolim today. The uh, Rav Shlomo Eliyashiv uh, was a Kabbalist from Lithuania um, who makes Aliyah in 1922 with his family. He wrote, he's known as the Leshem, or by his full name, which we just saw in Parsha yesterday, the Leshem Shvova Achlama, one of the names of the precious stones, one of the 12 stones in the Choshen Mishpat. The, um, his Sefer details what happens, what happened from the first moment that Hashem's emanation of light appeared all the way until the physical Bria. So it's an early history book, if you will, in Kabbalistic terms. It's based on the Zohar, it's based on the writings of the Rizal, of the Vilnagon. Much of the work he compiled by dictating to um, his son, his daughter's only son, who was but a 13-year-old lad at the time, by the name of, what well, we would know of him as Rav Yosef Shalom, who would grow up to be the Gadol Hador, Rav Yashif, who just passed away um, well over 100 years old, a few years ago. Um, and this is again from the time when, about a year after the Aliyah, they moved to Yerushalayim in 1923, and that's when the, uh, the, the Leshem was composed by grandfather and grandson. Uh, who was the Leshem? What was the significance? Um, it comes up a lot. There are those who say that he's one of, the, one of the few reliable sources of Kabbalah. I don't know if these count as opprobrium, but um, consider this. His was the only picture on display in the house of the Chofetz Chaim. That's good. Alternately, when the uh, Ben Chai received his copy of the Leshem Shvovach Lama, he made a Shechianu on the book. So clearly this was a this significant work. Uh, the next figure is Rav Meir Simcha HaKohen Abdvisk. Abdvinsk, excuse me, Dvinsk, Rav Meir Simcha Dvinsk, who is referred to by his sparring alternately the Meshach Chochma or the? Um, or the Orsameach. Good, good, no, I missed that one. Um, the Meshach Chochma is on Chumash, the Orsameach is on the Rambam, and as I argued uh, a few days ago, we're going to increasingly hear lots of books written on the Mishnah Torah of the Rambam. He, um, his, he was born in 1843, he is a child. Um, managed to avoid the regular roundup of the Cantonists who were trying to get all the Jewish boys, conscript the Jewish boys into the Russian army, to the Tsar's army. He studied in Bialystok uh, before he actually, that's where he learned, and that was before he began his post. And unusual for a rabbi in these, in these tumultuous days, he actually was the Rav in Dvinsk for, most, for, for, the, for the duration of his life. He... Um, he was, in 1906, one of the rabbis who discovered or, re, or, or, or took the, the newly rediscovered tractates of the Yerushalmi. Are you familiar with this episode? Um, you remember that we only have some of the Yerushalmi tractates, and, and many of them, some of them have been lost, and so they rediscovered tractates until Rav Meir Simcha, among others, proved that they were forgeries. But that's an impressive forgery. I mean, how would you even have a Havamina that something could be Yerushalmi unless you clearly knew your stuff? What the function of these is, is unclear. Why would somebody go out of their business? It's not like you're going to make a fortune on selling Yerushalmi copies, or maybe they thought they would. In any case, he, he uncovered the plot. He, uh, he had one daughter, and she died before her wedding. And so he was without descendants, and I think it was with that in mind, this institution... Um, was originally called Shema Yisrael and was criticized for the name because it was maybe seen your Shema Yisrael. It's too central a name to take a, uh, have a monopoly to take possession of it. So they changed the name to the Orsameach, ostensibly to give him beyond his farm perhaps uh, more of a legacy. Um, the his com even though we see hundreds of commentaries on the Mishnah Torah, his is unique in in what he does. He gathers many sources. And he, he's one of the major um, gedolim to reconcile contradictions within the Rambam, and, and there are many of those. He was uh, one of those one of those rabbanim, one of the many rabbanim who opposes 
the Zionist movement and the, um, the Haskalah in general, the Enlightenment. He um, has a very famous uh, short bit in his commentary in Parshat Bukhok Bechukosai when um, he writes that the uh, Maskilim, the enlightened Jews, should beware of thinking that Berlin is Jerusalem, which is very much what they thought. Berlin was very much at the cutting edge of culture at the time, and uh, they had, some actually had no problem brazenly saying, no, this is the new Jerusalem of the future. The, uh, the uh, Meshachochma wrote, the stormy winds will come from Ber Berlin. Kaplan said, said, said uh, Berlin's new Palestine. Not, 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 not the good right, 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 he did, he did, but he was not the first, he was not the first, so in, this is one of those um, oft-quoted sources that predicts the Shoah, um, we'll hear more about Rav Mir Simcha, he's going to continue to play a role, uh, interesting, I'll, I'll mention the, um, young, the younger, but um, very much you think of Rav Mir Simcha's life, you think of the life of Rav Yosef Rosen, who's known as the Rogachever Gaon, genius, the Rebbe, who was a Kaputster Chosid, a very, very uh, immensely uh, talented, who was recognized as an Ilui when he was 13. He, interesting, uh, this is a phase in history where there's increasing interplay between the Hasidish world and the Misnagdish world. He went to learn with the Beis Halevi, uh, the Rav, Rav Soloveitchik, he also learned by the next generation of Chaim Brisker, who was just five years older than him, but the Ragachever was a student of, of Chaim Brisker. He also learned under the uh, Maharil Diskin. So his, his pedigree in learning was very much litfish. He was himself a um, you know, chassid and a rebbe. And um, even though Rav Mer Simcha, the Meshachachma, was the litfish Rav in Dvinsk, um, he returned later to Dvinsk, and he was considerably younger than Rav Meir Simcha. He was 15 years his junior, but he returned later as the Hasidic Rav of Dvinsk. And it's a sm relatively small place to have to, 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 ha to house both of these relative giants. In Tyra was unusual. Uh, what was further unusual, even though they represented different hashkafas and, and so on, it's one of these beautiful instances where they each had great reverence for the, one another. Uh, they shared a love of, for the Rambam, particularly they, talk, they talked a lot in learning around the Rambam, and whereas the Rav Mer Simcha composed the Or Sameach, the Ragachever um, composed one of, one of, uh, some of his work, the Ragachever, the, the, his, his great writing around the Rambam too, you might, his, his book is the uh, Tzafnas Paneach. Um, he also wrote, if you remember, I mentioned this once upon a time, um, where the critics of the of the Mornevuchim of the Rambam, the guy to the perplexed, said that it was it was new. So the Ragachever was the one who found sources for all the apparently new ideas in the Mornevuchim in Chazal. He had that rare, uh, vast, vacuous knowledge comprehension of all of Shas to be able to do such a thing. Um, he had what we would call a photo photographic memory. He was also uh, an uncanny skill to be able to connect disparate kinds of sources and put things together that other people would have seen as completely unrelated and he saw the connection. Um, it's so interesting. In one generation, you have the Tzafnas Paneach, the Ragachar, the Orsameach, and Rav Chaim Briskers, Chidushe Rabbeinu Chaim, all on the Rambam, and we're going to see many more. Uh, the Ragachever gave smicha to a few individuals, among others to Rav Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who is the last, the seventh of the uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe's. Um, There's a really fantastic story that I'm going to do an abbreviation on. The Ragachever had a young disciple, a figure that's not well known in history, as well he should be, he sh and yet he should be known. His name is, um, and we just introduced him, this is a fantastic story you're going to enjoy, and, well, and, 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 have, and you'll break your heart too. But um, the Rabbi Dragon lived in Dvinsk with the Orsamea, with Rav Mer Simcha. We just, we just met and described. And um, he, his, his learning was on one of the high levels. And whereas, let's say, one quality of a Torah giant sometimes is to convey complex ideas in simple ways, the Rabbi Trevor could do that, but he was more in the lofty area. So a lot of people did not understand his Torah. He had a, a disciple who would, was known as Rabbi Yisrael Alter Safran Fox, who um, did get, he did hop his Rebbe's teachings, 
Israeli's teachings were vast, a lot of them not recorded, not written down. And after the Rogachevra died in 1936, ill winds are blowing, and um, Rav Yisrael Alter stays in Dvinsk, remains deliberately in Dvinsk to transcribe his Rebbe's often illegible writing. And then, well, 1936 already, the Nazi regime is very much if it's in power, it's on the rise. Uh, the threats are very clear. He stayed at the expense, uh, uh, at, at the risk to his own life. His goal, though, he, he didn't know what to do. He, was, he stayed in order to, to, to copy immense amounts of, of notes and marginal scrawls and all kinds of uh, different, different um, wisdom from his Rebbe. And then once he compiled it and clarified it, he then started to, the, he used modern technology and he used a photograph, uh, he, used, he, used, he used a camera to photograph um, and, and to render all of the writings on microfilm. Uh, this is a process that took several years. Um, he was, even he, he was a great student, he had difficulty understanding the Rogachevers um, writing, so he sent to Eretz Yisrael where the Rogachevers daughter had moved. She'd made Aliyah. And because, they talked about such an important project of saving the Torah of this Gaon and anticipating the Nazis wiping out everything that, was, that, that the Jews would know in Europe, she actually traveled from Eretz Yisrael back to Dvinsk in order to, to, to help with the project. And um, they stayed there. They photographed all of the vast uh, uh, body of the, of the Rogachevers writings. And then Rav Yisrael Alter Safran Fox, his vice scheme, at this point he couldn't get out anymore. So he sent a box of old, a package of old clothes to his uncle Harry Safran in the Bronx. And, he's, and he hid very carefully the microfilm in the old clothes. And then he and the daughter of the Rugachever who had come over especially, she had a new life in here to show, they both perished. The, Nazi, the Nazis got them both. And for a couple of decades, the box, the package of old clothes, which Uncle Harry Safran in the Bronx could not imagine for the life of him, why would his nephew send over this package of clothes from the old world? He didn't need them in America, thank you very much. And he put it up in the attic. And it took until the 1960s when Harry's son, who had actually gotten smicha and was Rev. William Safran of Peoria, Illinois, was hunting around in his father's <laughs> attic one day, looked at this pa old package sent from the old country and said, what's this? And they rediscovered the Rogachevers uh, great writings on the microfilm. Um, the, uh, his nephew, Rav Yisrael Alter, who had dedicated his life to redeeming his the Rogachevers Torah, was himself an incredible genius in Torah, left no children, uh, he was murdered when he was 30 by the Nazis. So the Rugged Shepherd's Torah was his Torah and that was his legacy. It, what the Nazis wiped out in Europe is more than our minds can uh, possibly fathom what was lost. <clears throat> uh, we're coming around now, uh, coming, coming to the modern times and it's not going to be easy for us to get through this. Um, this is the time after meeting the, the, the more or less contemporaries, um, we meet the Chafetz Chaim, whose full name is Rabbi Yisrael Mayor Kagan Pupko. I've never asked if our own uncle is related from the same last name. I don't know. Uh, it's a very common name, very well-known name, a lot, a lot of, lot of uh, important Torah personalities with the last name. The Chafetz Chaim's dates, he lived almost 100 years, 1838 to 1933. He was, for a short time, official Rav of his village of Raden. He resigned and started a yeshiva. He was Rosh Yeshiva from 1869 and then indefinitely throughout his life. Um, the Chavetz Chaim is one of these figures that's going to be hard for us to um, assess, kind of like we said about the Vilna Gon, in terms of his impact. But if you had to sum it up, I would say that in the minds of Klal Yisrael, he's an icon for more than any of his other accomplishments, which were vast, 
of his for his simple yira shemaim. No, 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 no frills. Nothing, nothing. Uh, what what we see and um, pure and holy. Uh, it's extraordinary again for all those years that um, all there was was that one picture that suddenly just a few weeks ago we were all zochim to uh, see that that uh, rare video footage of the Chafetz Chaim. Now, very, very famously, the, we're going to hear more. I'm going to give you a bit of an assessment of, of, of some of his major points in life. But as I've been doing throughout this, this class, I introduce a lot of the rabbinic figures. And then we'll see how they'll um, interact and impact the historical events of the time as we turn into the 20th century. His wife managed a local shop, a store, Makolit, and that's how they supported themselves. When the prices got too low, that competitors complained because they were so they didn't want to make too much money. Shalom who make money on your on your account, so they they were, they were they were so cheap that everybody went shopping there. And the competitors said, "You're putting us putting us out of business." So the Chavetz Chaim did the logical thing under the circumstances. He closed his store down. Shalom not only should he you know overcharge customers, but he's not going to be the source of another person's parnasa woes. So he, he closes down the uh, the business and he turned to teaching Tyra in order to support his family. There are so many great stories of Chavetz Chaim. All, a lot of them around his store. He kept the books to make sure that everything was mamish, lefi, yachosh, and mishpat. In one instance, a, a non-Jew that he did not recognize came in, purchased fish, and then forgot the fish. So the Chavetz Chaim did the logical thing under the circumstances. The next day, everybody who entered his store got free fish. He erred on the side of making sure he was, he was, you know, he wanted to be more giving than taking. Chas anybody should, should, and he didn't know how to return the last object to, a, to, the, to the owner, so, so that was his solution. He himself, or Bisrael, Mayor Kagan, Pupko, had a problem with a certain Avera that he struggled with. It was like, let me know which Avera that was. Uh, anger, yes, I'll tell stories about anger, but no, there was one that was, it was um, legendary that he had a real problem with Lashon Hara. Although he was good with No, he wasn't, and that's why he wrote the book. If you're trying to work on an Amida, there's an approach for you. Be the world's master in that area, and then write the book on the subject. That's one way you can hope to overcome the bad Amida. What's that? That's what he said himself, I don't believe him. But that's what he said. He said he struggled with it. Maybe it meant, by the way, not that he transgressed it, but that internally he struggled with it and that he tried to avoid it. But it wasn't easy. It didn't come naturally to him. That's great. I mean, that insight is, is gold. I, 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 so, it's so tricky as a teacher, as a writer, as a rabbi, as a postdoc. So often you teach the lofty ideas of Torah and you give the implication of, yeah, well, here's what you should do. And when you get to my esteemed high level one day, kids, right, you could be like me too, as if we've all mastered these lofty ideals that we speak about. Halavai, uh, when we get to this point, again, one of the best ways of overcoming Amida is learn everything that Chazal wrote about them and then write your own magnum opus on the subject. That's what the Chafetz Chaim did in Shmir Salashon. He did it himself by his own account to work on himself. Um, he, uh, some of the things he has to say there, you should learn the whole book but that are that really to understand what it's about. Lashon Hara, he says, is, one of, is the only sin done with the neshama. He says, other, he explains that other sins are done with what we have, the nefesh Bahamas, the animalistic side of ourselves, and the neshama regrets it. But Lashon Hara cuts so deep that the neshama at a certain level takes part in it. Um, and he elaborates, he says, when we speak, we know this, Speech is, the, is, is what makes us human. We talked about the quality of a golem recently and how a golem is a domem, he cannot speak. And when you can speak, you've defined your humanity, but you've done more than that. You've, you're connecting with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. It distinguishes us from the animals. So when you misuse this golden gift from a Kaddish Baruch Hu, so then the Chavetz Chaim points out how if you speak Lashon Hara potentially, you're transgressing up to 17, <coughs> 17 different negative precepts in the Torah. There are, mitzv- there are 14 mitzvahs ase, and it's a chiddush because what is he, he elaborates. For example, lo don't hate your neighbor in your heart, right? That we know. It's a love, shame mice. You haven't done anything, usually, if you hate the person in your heart. The minute a person, however, speaks Lashon Hara about somebody who happens to hate, 
he's simultaneously transgressing the, the, the Avera of Lashonara and he's over in a tangible, active way the mitzvah of That's unique Lashonara and, and he, he elucidates that and he elaborates the whole thing on how you could potentially be violating all these Averas that you would otherwise not be doing. He says a person who speaks Lashonara becomes more cruel, he's more likely to get angry, he'll be more frivolous, he'll call us Rosh, and he points to the many other antithetical midos that Lashonar breeds. And, the Chavaz Chaim points out, it's so central, it's so critical that a person be careful in Shemir Salashon. And yet, fascinatingly, through our long history and the, through the volumes and volumes of literature written on almost every subject in Torah, a precious little had been written on the subject. And so he sets about to um, find everything, every source in Shas and the post scheme, and he writes virtually from scratch the Shmir Salashon. The book itself, its legacy, think about it this way. This is, I think, this is a very nice formulation from Rabbi Wine, who says, in an, in an age of unrestrained freedom of speech, the Chafetz Chaim teaches the message of social harmony and justice through the correct use of words. They're all arguing, well, let me say whatever I want. We're arguing, yes, say what you want, but use it not as a weapon, as usually people do, but rather as a tool of kedusha. Um, like you said before, I'm going to comment on this too, the Chafetz Chaim struggled with his midah of kas, of anger. It wasn't just him, he was a Kohen and Kohanim, not all Kohanim, of course, but there is a link that people make between Kohanim and anger. There's something about the... Uh, the the seed of Aaron Cohen that apparently they struggle more with anger than the average person, uh, and and Chavetz Chaim was no exception to this. Levi, it's part of Levi for sure. Kohanim are a subset of Levi, no question. It's related. Mila Shemelai and the Kanaus of Levi of Pinchas and and, and 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 others for sure, all all interconnected. Um, this is a story also from Rabbi Wine. He said his wife's his late wife's father was an orphan who was taken in by the Chafetz Chaim as a child and was zochet to live there and see the Chafetz Chaim as a person. And one story that he recounted, which is not well known, was he was standing and the Chafetz Chaim didn't realize the boy was in, in, in the house behind, around the corner uh, and a man came to the door of the Chafetz Chaim's house to give him a hard time. I sometimes think, you know, when Chafetz Chaim was inside the door and everybody recognized that and treated him accordingly, uh, we forget a lot of the time that our Gedolim um, <coughs> We're often disparaged. We're often uh, treated with, uh, with with complete disdain, and there were political intrigues. And so, somebody, one of his opponents, came to the door and started giving it to the Chavetz Chaim. Can you imagine what's going on with that person at home, Haba? In any case, apparently the Chavetz Chaim restrained himself and didn't say anything. But evidently, the man pushed his buttons, and so when finally the man left, Chavetz Chaim didn't say anything inappropriate. But when he closed the door, his, he, was in a, he was very, very agitated. And so the boy, Wine's father-in-law, describes how the Chafetz Chaim paced around the room and talked himself out of his anger. And the, the way he did it was something to the effect of, um, oh, look at you, Mr. Chafetz Chaim. Everybody comes to you with their shilas, and you can't even overcome a single midah of, of, of anger. And he talked himself out of that, which is by the it's, it's a great tool. If you see yourself, if, you, if people hold you to be somebody of significance, and yet you you know you see yourself struggling with very human lower kinds of uh, flaws, so you it's a great device you can use to try to contain your yetzer. And he did; it was effective. Um, I'll I'll tell you, they tell I don't know about your experiences. You've heard stories of Gedolim? Yeah. Yeah, comes up a lot. Sometimes you hear stories of Gedolim. Sometimes in the biographies that are written. They give you the impression that the Gadol was born, and immediately after being born, he cleaned up the mess he made and then turned to his mother to apologize for any inconvenience he caused her. You've heard such stories before? Yeah. You know, or, or something to that effect. The Gadol is so <laughs> perfect on such a, such a transcendent level, even in the... Um, it was like from a young age, he was like... Right, but sometimes you hear those stories about lots of people. <coughs> and they're too perfect to be believed. And more than that, sometimes they're not helpful to me because then I think, 
well, that was them, and this is me, and they're the twain shall meet, and there's no connection between the two of us, and I can't even um, draw from that to, to, to work on my own midos. But I don't know about you, I hear a story like this, by the Chavetz Chaim, it's so real, it's so down to earth, and here's a, here was a gadol on the loftiest level, who as, a, as an ordinary human being, Basar Vidam struggled, and I can do that too, I can learn from that also. He wrote broadly, widely, of course he wrote the Mishnah of Burud, six volumes, which is considered, he's the Posik Acharon, by many accounts, the last uh, really authoritative Posik, um, which is not to say that everything in the Mishnah Burud becomes hard fact halacha across the board. Certainly later Poskim have issues um, in many instances, but it's quite authoritative in our generation. Um, the Mishnah Burud would have two companion um, commentaries, we just talked about this over Shabbos, right? Um, the Bir Alocha gives all the background, um, and the Sharat Siyun gives the index, gives the, gives the notes where, the, where, the, where a lot of his uh, sources are. But he wrote many, many other books. He wrote books, like, he wrote a book for Jewish soldiers. Given that many, uh, not just in the Tsar's army, but in many armies, <coughs> Jews were often forced to serve in the army, okay. But then a lot of halachic issues came up. Very rare was it was it was a gadol who actually addressed these questions. The Chavetz Chaim was sensitive to the needs of soldiers and hope, hopeful that they would retain their frumkite and wrote letter, wrote a book towards them. He wrote a special book for women in halacha. He wrote book for wrote books for students. Meaning he was somebody who was constantly worried. Concerned he was no sebaol im chaverav and he was constantly concerned about every um, sector of the Jewish people. Um, his son-in-law was Rav Mendel Zaks. And um, their son, actually, Rav Hillel Zaks, just passed away. He's a very dynamic Rosh Hashiva in Eretz Israel. But the, the Chavaz Chaim's son-in-law, one of them, was Rav Mendel Zaks, who, um, this is not written down. It's known by many. It's certainly known in the Kol Brisk. Um, he cites his, um, his shver, the Chavaz Chaim, as saying, he asked, he asked the Shver, is the cherem that the Gaon of Vilna signed against Hasidus still betokef? Is it still valid? And the Chavetz Chaim, he reported, um, said, no, it doesn't pertain anymore except against Chabad and Breslav. He singled out those two. He said, and, and, and the reason is that these two, like maybe some of the original generation of Hasidim, can continue to elevate their, um, their respective rebbies to a point that they deified them, almost turning them into a god, god-like figure with special powers, who heard the vidui, who could be daven to, um, turning them into intermediaries bet between the common folk and a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Um, what's alluded to apparently in the Tanya is Hashem's light is too bright sometimes, so the Rebbe is there for you as an intermediary of sorts. Um, We'll get more on this when we talk about Chabad and Breslav in the modern era. The um, Rav Zaks re comes to America and reestablishes the yeshiva of Raden in America during World War II and will become the great Chafetz Chaim yeshiva, which has branches in many places, including not far, it, right as you pass the, you pass the Chafetz Chaim, the yeshiva Chafetz Chaim, as you go to Reb Rickman's house and many of the Rebbe, Rebbe's house down in, down in uh, Sanhedrin Rechevet. Can you picture it? Do you know the campus? That's the Jerusalem branch, and there are other branches around the world. Uh, the Chofetz Chaim Heritage Foundation uh, disseminates his teachings, Mirsalashon, around the world. Uh, one man really uh, signaled quite a revolution. I mean, the area of Lashon Hara today, uh, we're not good at it necessarily. We, many of us still fail and stumble, but it's in our minds. It's on the, it's, it, we have a consciousness, we're aware of the basic halachas. Maybe that's worse because we neglect it, but no, it really isn't. People really um, are holding in the sugya, the schuto, and we'll hear more about him. It, arguably, the other Gadol Hador from the pre-Shoah generation um, was a younger contemporary, Rav Chaim Ozer Grzhensky, who who's known by his commentary on the... Why, it's the Mishnah Torah of the Rambam. It, it's called the Achiezer. He, actually, that's, his, that's his collection of Sakhalacha. He also has a commentary on the Rambam. He was um, the posek in Lithuania for about 55 years after Rabbeinu, after Rabbeinu Yitzchak Hachanan. 
So Rav Chaim Ozer is, is a name we're going to be hearing a lot about. I'm introducing these figures now. We're going to certainly be uh, um, learning from them. Um, he was arguably during the, one of the most difficult eras in history. He was the post-sec. He, he had to field such impossible questions. This is during the communist, the early Bolshevist and the communist era um, in, in, in Lithuania. And then, of course, during the early Nazi, Nazi era, era, he died in 1940, Rav Chaim Ozer. He, um, he was a student of Rav Chaim Brisker. He was such a dedicated posek. At one point, his daughter lay dying in a hospital. And what did he do? During the time that she was dying, he ran back and forth simultaneously to be with his daughter in the hospital, but then back to his office, which wasn't that far away, to answer Shilas. And why was he running back and forth so much? Because he knew the minute that his daughter died, he'd be an Ovel and he would not be available to the many, many hundreds of petitioners who needed his Pesach Halacha uh, during, during the entire Shiva week. And so Chas Shalom, he should miss out. He wanted to be available to Jews. You always have to ask yourself, what is a person's obligation in his world, as the Ramchal says? And clearly, Rav Chaim Moser lived this life um, when the Chafetz Chaim, as an older man, was stopped at the border and the non-Jewish border guard didn't believe that he was who he said he was, and they said, well, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Pupko, prove that you're a rabbi, and the answer to that question was he wasn't a rabbi because the Chafetz Chaim never got smicha. So he was stuck at the border, and he sent a telegram to Rav Chaim Ozer Guzensky, the Gadol Ador, and Rav Chaim Ozer, Ozer Guzensky responded by telegram with a special smicha for the Chafetz Chaim. Uh, so that was to show, I, I use the story, I mentioned it a lot, the smicha that we have today is helpful and useful to try to distinguish legitimate rabbis from the other types, um, but it's not real smicha. Uh, we've heard about the, uh, the, the failed, the foiled attempt of, of the Mari Beirav in Sfas in the 16th century to, to, to restart smicha. I'll mention here, I'll mention in this class, other more modern attempts. Um, but you know, smicha is just a pro forma kind of a title. <clears throat> the final figure I'm going to mention today, and then we're going to talk about developments up, up leading to World War One. And the final figure I'm going to mention today in a totally different sector, really one of a kind, one standing in his very much his own category, is Rav Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Cook, um, who lived between 1865 and 1935. Um, he was considered, he was indeed the first chief rabbi, Ashkenazi chief rabbi, under the British Mandate Palestine, starting in 1921. He was also the POSEC, official POSEC of the Mizrahi movement. Does anybody remember what Mizrahi stands for? Mizrahi is often, Mizrahi means East, right? So people sometimes refer to Mizrahi Jewry as Sephardi Jews, but here Mizrahi Jewry means something different. Mizrahi is, um, is an abbreviation for Mer Merkaz Ruchani. That was Rashmul Moliver and, and Ravrinus' name for the religious division of the whole Beit Sion. And the name stuck. Until today, the modern Orthodox movement, I guess you call it Bay Abayta Yehudi in the elections uh, on Tuesday. Um, but um, that's the Mizrahi world. And Rav Kook is considered was considered the posek of the Mizrahi world. And I should really point out parenthetically, he still remains the posik of the Mizrahi world to a large degree, and that's a problem. Because he died in 1935. And we'll get to this when we talk about the modern movements and the, the, the state of the world as we are today, um, why that's not adequate to say who is your posik and the site Rav Cook. He died long before many of the relevant issues that define the Mizrahi today would come up. So it's simply conjecture to say that he'd support you. In fact, it's entirely possible, and in some instances plausible, that Rev. Cook would have disagreed. But you'll hear more on that later. Uh, he is a compelling figure. He's a misunderstood figure. I I'll do my best. As with everything else, I'm biased. I try not to hide my biases. Um, and you, they'll come through in my presentation. I'm trying to do, try to do the topic justice on who was Rev. Cook exactly. Now, his father had learned in Volozhin, and Rev. Cook learned in Volozhin. So try to get a sense of his background, what, how, what shaped the man. He went to the flagship yeshiva of the Lithuanian uh, Misnagdish world. 
his mother was like the Ragachava Rebbe, a kaputz, a, 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 a kaputzter chassid, and a, 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 a very strong stream of chassidus um, runs through Rav Kook and his teachings in, the, uh, in, in his sefer, in his sfarim. Um, so that you know, the fact that he merges both of these worlds is, is significant in his life. He was personally a disciple of the Nitziv of Elohim, cites the Nitziv widely. He married the daughter of, a, of the Rosh Yeshiva Ponovich, who's called the Adaris. They're actually buried very, right near one another on, Mount, on, on Harazesim. Um, the Adaris would later be the chief Rav in Yerushalayim. And Rav Cook was a mainstream Rav who served in various different uh, cities around Lithuania. He also began writing many of his works back in Europe in the old country. Um, and that was all the way until he was uh, 39 years old. Um, and when he was 39 in the year 1904, Rav Cook very, very significantly made the, made the momentous decision to make Aliyah, to move to Eretz HaKodesh. 1904 was not, a, not an easy time to come. What's going on in Eretz Yisrael in 1904? Who, who's the ruling? Who's the ruling? The Ottomans are dominant here. They're falling apart. The Ottoman Empire is, is coming loose at the seams. Corruption is, 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 is rife. There's immense development here. The various Christian powers are all trying to vie for their piece of the pie. The, um, it's a year after a new development in the Jewish world. What's going on from 1903 in, in, in Palestine? But they call the second Aliyah, which we discussed last week, as being the new secular socialist Aliyah, which is now an institution. There was already secularism in, among the Jews from the first Aliyah. People had gone off from the religious stream, but now, now people are celebrating secularism as a way of life. And he comes and he lives in Yafo, and he's made immediately the Rav in Yafo, right near the port where he arrives. And one of his first projects is to make a connection with the um, Yishuvim, the settlement, the Jewish settlements nearby, and he starts doing Kiruv. Kiruv flowed through the veins of Rav Kook. That's just who he was. And you'll hear more on this, more on this. He loved Jews, and he wanted to reach out. Um, a brief overview of his life before I go and try to talk about the man and some of his ideas. Um, he would be in Eretz Yisrael, very impactful. Uh, he would return to the old country, um, he was on a he was on a business a fundraising uh, trip where he was in London and Switzerland during World War One, and because of the war, he was actually unable to return to Palestine, couldn't come back to, to Palestine, so he was stuck in Europe. And he returned in 1921, and in 1921, the much more organized Jewish, what's called the Yishuv, have you heard that term before? The Yishuv, the settlement, establishment. Um, appointed him the first chief rabbi of the Ashkenazi world. Um, now that was a controversial and remains a controversial. But do you know about the chief rabbi? There's still chief rabbis till today. Is this familiar to you? Yeah. It's controversial. I want to hear more on this. One of the things that the secular Zionists figured they would do, they wanted hegemony. They wanted to control everything. And they were deeply bothered by the independence of the religious world. All Jews have to be together on this project of Zionism. And so very craftily, they decided that they could, and they were, they were masters of organization, of institutionalization, of turning everything into institutions that would eventually become infrastructure of the state. Uh, and they're, they're building a medical, um, a medical uh, wing in the Zionist movement and a, and, and a labor wing. And they, they decide they're going to have their own Zionist rabbinate meaning the rabbis will function under us. And that way they can kind of keep a control on it. Um, they would do the same with the kashrus industry, the rabbanut. The rabbanut in kashrus is very much about, uh, you know, they're maintaining hegemony. It's one of the reasons why, for example, um, you, have, you have, let's say, the badats, the badatsim, or the Eda Haredis and the other badatsim. Because <laughs> they don't want to go with the state. They don't like the state. That's part of the ideological rift. Well, a similar um, conflict now emerges with the institution of chief rabbi. Chief rabbi, yeah, but as determined by a democratic election, that's never been the way that a gadol comes to godless. It's not through election, it's through natural selection. It's a, it's a meritocracy. But the chief rabbi, it was elected classic democratic style, and it was very much, even though there'd be great figures who held the job, great Torah luminaries, 
but not necessarily the Gadol Hador, and very much under the thumb of the, of the Zionists. So then why would Rav Kook take this job? Because Rav Kook was idealistic, and from his perspective, he felt this was the first step to recreating the Sanhedrin. That's what he was trying to do. He wants, he wants a new Sanhedrin out of this whole process. Now, um, would you say he was a I would not say he was Gadol Hador. In fact, he was a he was an immense Talmud Chacham whose works are on a high level of Taira and insight. Um, they show a strong influence from Sadak Cohen, as influenced by the Maharal. Deep thought, totally integrated, and ability to express profound ideas to a modern sensibility. Um, and everybody recognized his greatness in that regard, but his ashkafas were original, and whereas in, let's say, if you're in university, so original is a compliment. In the Torah world, originally, original is not necessarily a compliment. Most of the other rabbis had earlier, they, were, they already had differences of opinion, but in 1921, when the Rav became an official, an official within the chief rabbinate, many of the other gadolim moved away from him. And, and, and distanced themselves from him. They did not, certainly not recognize him as Gadol because of what they perceived as um, problematic hashkafos. So they denounced his, like... Not denounced. See, here's where, here's where it's a little tricky. Um, we're going to see a similar dynamic many years later in the, in the case of Rav Soloveitchik at YU. Um, their hashkafos were hashkafos, both Rav Kook and Rav Soloveitchik, are hashkafos that are... are um, would be and continue to be not popular among other gedolim and, pro- and, and, and controversial in that way, the people were, re- were regarded as, as high-level tamari chachamim, tzaddikim, faimidos, and often what you get is the lower level who speak de- in a denigrating way about Rav Kook and ultimately Rav Soloveitchik. Often you'll hear people, and again, not gedolim. Gedolim don't speak in slur like this. They don't. They don't. They don't talk down. But you'll hear people refer to Rav Soloveitchik as JV. What's the put down? You know, you don't talk about somebody of that stature as JV, but people do. Right? And and the same would you don't hear. You know, Rav Yosef Chaim Zunnenfeld, who we met last week, uh, was it was was on a very personal, close uh, level of friendship with Rav Kook. How do you disagree with him? Rav Zonenfeld would, 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 would be the founder of the Eid Haredis. So hashkafically, they were in many ways miles apart, but as colleagues, as mutually respectful uh, friends, uh, they, he would never sink and lower himself to the level of slur. But Rav Kook was controversial, and he, took, he, he stuck his neck out in areas <coughs> that he didn't have too many allies. Um, some that would stick would be very close to Rav, um, Rav Arya Levine, who will meet Tzadik in our time, um, remained very close to Rav Kook, Rav Chalaf, and others. Um, but, but many of the other names had problems. They argued. And it, was, it was a machlokus. We'd say this for sure. It's a machlokus l'shem shemayim. So who, what is, who is Rav Kook? What does he stand for? His, what he saw, his work, his goal in life was to bridge gaps between different groups. And wow, are there many groups in the Jewish people. When we hit the 20th century, we're all over the place. And we've been building on this for centuries, especially the last couple centuries, uh, but we're a mess. We're all over the place. And Rav Rav Kook tried to be a unifier. Um, And himself was often misunderstood. The secular saw his efforts as an endorsement of their secularism. See, we have Rav Kook on our side. He loves us. And they didn't hear the Kiruv, they just saw, ooh, Rav Kook loves us, and therefore we're going to continue our path. Which is, again, the fact that the secular took it that way, as they generally did, was exactly what the other, what we call the Yeshuvah Yashana, the Haredi post, he said exactly was the problem with Rav Kook's ideas, that he would be misunderstood by the secular. Um, and they saw, and, 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 and the, the other Gedolim saw him as, as, as overly concessionary. He gave in too much. So what did Rav Kook say for himself? He knew all these criticisms. He was extremely, he was a brilliant individual. Uh, understatement, hard to capture exactly the immensity of his mind. He saw secular Zionism as an agent of Hashem. And part of Hashem's plan to bring Mashiach. So as others were now looking, we saw a long list of Gedolim, and we continue to see a long list of Gedolim who saw the whole movement as problematic. Rav Kook was very positive, and he said, we're going to, 
we're going to revive the Sanhedrin, we're going to uh, build up uh, the base of Mikdash eventually, we're going to bring Mashiach. Um, now, it didn't mean he, was, he lacked criticism. He was often vocally uh, critical of the Chil Shabbos that he saw. For example, there were new sport, Zionist sports leagues that played on Shabbos, and Rav Kook was very open in, in condemning this. But he saw also, he simultaneously condemned the sports team's Chil Shabbos, but he said, but look at them, look at how, look at how physically fit these young men are. Uh, we're looking at the physical re re resurrection of a nation. He was always somebody who could see the good, see the, see the uh, viable, in, um, even, even, even where there was uh, secularism. He, um, his goal, as he said, was like this. I'll quote him in the Hebrew. L'chadesh es hayoshon v'lekadesh es To renew the old and to sanctify the new which is a beautiful summary of, of a lot of his approach. He didn't reject the new just because it was new. Unlike, let's say, the, we think of the Hassan Sofer as, as, as being suspicious of the new. Uh, that was not Rav Cook's ideology. Um, he, for example, was, didn't embrace all of modernity when um, a drunkard by the name of uh, Naftali Hertz Imber composed what was originally a much longer multi-stanza poem that became shortened into Hatikva, which became the national anthem of the Jews. Um, Rav Kook didn't like it one bit. There was no Kedusha. There were strange ideas, Goyish ideas conveyed there. A couple of nice ideas, but generally he, he rejected it and actually wrote his own national anthem called Ha'emuna, that some people know and some people use as a substitute for Hatikva. Yes, yes. Uh, some say, I, I heard possibly that that's attributed to him falsely, but I, I, think, I think I understood that he, that he did write it. Um, <laughs> when he was accused of being overly concessionary, he, he said, you know, I'm as capable as the next guy of rejecting people, but since there are a lot of people doing that, playing that role, they don't need me also. My role, I see, is somebody who embraces. That's how, that's how he saw himself. Why are all these ideas like why just because they're new? Why can't they be like he obviously had probably other backup for it, like he had sources for it. So for sure, why, for why sure. Can't why can't that be embraced? I, I'm I'm doing something confusing right now. I'm trying to present. I obviously don't subscribe to this movement that sees Rav Cook as their luminary. Um, but I'm encouraging people to think in a complex way. I don't see there's a contradiction between seeing Rav Cook in the best possible light, I hope I'm presenting him that way, um, and still saying that it, 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 I don't see that working long term despite the ideas, and despite there's absolutely justification for a lot of these ideas. Um, you'll hear, let me, let me continue, and you'll hear why, you know, why, why people, even if you acknowledge the beauty and the theoretical idea, why practically many feel it doesn't work. Well, I'll, I'll give you a couple of illustrations. But let me first, uh, a little bit more on Rough Cook, and then, and then, I'll, then, I'll, then, I'll, then I'll try to explain the other side. Um, another quotation from Rough Cook. He says, secular Zionists may think that they're doing what they're doing for political or national or socialist reasons. The real reason that they come to resettle Eretz Israel is because they have a religious spark in their souls. Um, that's really what's doing it. And that's planted by Hashem. So that without their even knowing it, they are contributing to Hashem's scheme and actually doing a great mitzvah. And that's how we saw it. And that's till today very much the underpinning of the national religious ethos. They see the good within Zionism and they know, even though the secular state, other reasons for what they're doing, they believe they see that mitzvah. They see that divine spark. So then, um, he says, the role of religious Zionists, as Rav Cook, as the architect, uh, would understand it, is to help the secular establish a Jewish state and then turn the religious spark in their neshamas into a great light. He was extremely poetic. Um, they should show, the religious should show the secular that the real source of Zionism and for the long for Zion, is really Judaism. 
and to teach them Torah with love and with kindness. In the end, the secular will come to understand that the laws of Torah are the only key to true harmony in a socialist state, and the state will be a light to the nations and bring Geula to the world. Is a beautiful summary, a statement of purpose, as it were. So what's wrong? So in theory, nothing's wrong. In practice, given the cynicism of the secular Zionists, and what I said before, the fact that they had their own agenda and used Rev. Cook and, and, and his writings and his teachings as, as what we call a fig leaf, um, I'll illustrate with this little anecdote. In 1925, they opened up the Hebrew University across the way here in Jerusalem on Mount Scopus. And um, they invited Rev. Cook to be, as the Ashkenazi chief rabbi, to speak. And he initially declined, and they begged him. And when they put on pressure, he started to reconsider. And many of his um, colleagues, and certainly the anti-Zionist colleagues, which were numerous in the, in, in, the, in the Jewish Torah world, they argued, you can't do it. They're using you as a fig leaf. They're going to ignore the good and, take, and just take you for whatever their purposes are. And Rav Cook wasn't convinced. And he said, I'm going to use my position as, a, I'm going to take the leverage from my position to the advantage of Torah. So he decides to bargain with them. And he says, I'll make you a deal. Did I tell you the story? I think I remember, but I don't remember that. <clears throat> yeah, I'm sure I have, because it comes up. And it's a great illustration of exactly, I would say, the flaw in the thinking. Um, he said, I'll use my advantage as chief rabbi and the fact that they want me to speak as leverage. And he negotiates what sounds like a tremendous deal. Hebrew University was a bastion of, of, of the Revisionschaft, of the secular enlightenment. And of course, they're going to teach there the Mikor and Mikra, the biblical criticism of Graf Wellhausen. And it'll become and their, their idea is to build up the center of the world for biblical criticism, which is antithetical to everything in Torah. Obviously, it, it, it sees Tanakh as, human, as written by human beings. And Rav Kook brokers a deal where they officially agree that they're not going to teach biblical criticism, they're going to teach Torah according to tradition, which he feels is, is an immense advantage. And with that in mind, he speaks, and he does speak, and it's over the heads of most. Most people don't really get it. He's extremely uh, critical, and he rebukes them for various excesses in the Hill Shabbos. They um, sat there politely and respectfully when he finished speaking. Everybody applauded, and he totally ignored and disregarded the content of his words. Um, and today, the Hebrew University, and almost immediately after the inauguration of Hebrew University, you can see pictures on campus, in the center of campus, of Rav Cook at the inauguration in 1925. And um, almost immediately in the 1926 <laughs> until today, Hebrew University remains one of the world's top areas, top centers for the study of biblical criticism. Completely disregarding Rav Cook, the agreement with Rav Cook because he had no leverage. They don't have to keep their promise to him. They don't know him a thing, as far as they're concerned. And thereby validating all the criticism of, the, of those who said, you can't go. You give an inch, they'll take a mile. Um, if you remember the story of the Yeshiva Yashan, Yeshiva Chadash, and the struggle of the Shemitah, but it wasn't just Shemitah. It was the Baron's um, wicked administrators, the Rishayim, who went and deliberately went to take a whole generation and, and secularize them. And the criticism of the old Yishuv Yeshad was if you join forces, your lofty goal is to influence them from within. They're going to do a better job of influencing you and your children. And that's, that's, the, um, that's the complication within, within Rav Cook's ideas. Um, another illustration. <clears throat> the same year in 1925, uh, there were elections, and there was an immense controversy, you should be aware, we just talked about elections at lunch, there were elections, Svarah Benashi, Mamash, what we just talked about at the, at the lunch table, uh, uh, um, women in halachic terms are not supposed to have political um, leadership, not be in positions of political leadership, and the fact that we had Devora and Shlom Siona Malka and a few other exceptions, they were the exceptions and that was the rule, and the fact that they were in their positions were very much... They were a product of their time and place and circumstances, and it was um, it was strange that they had those jobs, and women shouldn't have those jobs. The real honor of a Jewish woman is internal; it's not it's not out there um, running for Knesset, um, according to our tradition. And um, in this case, 1925, the issue was: could women vote? 
I mean, Pshita, they weren't running for office. That was not a consideration back then. But just could women even be a part of the political process in a de democratic system? And um, they, the Mizrahi officially asked, it was also whether they could be elected to, I, I take that back. They, they asked about being elected, but even could they vote? They asked Rav Cook, the gut, their gadol, their posek, could they do this? And he paskined in a tshuva that was with sources, the classic Jewish way, unequivocally, no. <clears throat> um, that year, women in the Mizrahi world voted. They, nobody, none was elected, but they all voted. And um, Jabotinsky, who was very much the icon of the, of the um, political right wing, um, said, it's okay, we'll find other rabbis, they'll say that women can vote, and that's what they did. They found some rabbi somewhere under a rock, and he said you could, women can vote, and that was the end of it. it was, from their perspective, and this is not the last time we're going to hear this kind of a thing, the fact that they asked Shaila was good enough. The idea that they would listen to the Pesach Halacha, oh, come on, they don't have to do that much. In 2003 or 2004, the issue came up again about electing a woman to the Knesset. The official posek of the, at the time it was the Maftal, now it's a Baita Yehudi, the National Religious Party, was Rav Mordechai Eliyahu Zatzal, <clears throat> and they asked him, could they elect a woman to the Knesset? And he poskened unequivocally, no. That year they elected uh, Gila Finkelstein to the Knesset as on, on the Maftal list. And I heard an interview with the representative of the Zionist, religious Zionist women's faction, um, where a secular uh, interviewer asked her, he said, listen, I'm not, a, I'm not a, um, an Orthodox Jew, but one thing as an outsider that I, I think I know about Orthodox is that you defer to Torah as an authority, and if you ask a rabbi a question, and he tells you what to do, so you do that. Isn't that part of the system? And he asked this woman, how then, knowing that Rav Eliyahu said no, did you elect Gila Finkelstein? Um, and the woman, like most diplomats and, and political fat smooth talkers, said, oh, she said something to the effect. She said nothing. And she said, well, we ask lots of questions. We certainly ask our rabbis. We ask when we have other questions in medical ethics. We ask doctors. We'll ask engineers. We'll ask lawyers. We'll ask all kinds of people. And we don't always, you know, we need to consult with the experts, but we don't, as politicians, we don't always feel that it's prudent to follow all everybody's advice, she said. And that's, that's the spirit. Oh, and now it's not even an issue. Now, that is not even a Shiloh. Now they have secular people serving. And, and the, the rabbis, again, are fig leaves. There's no deference to the rabbi. And that's, and they say, well, who's your rabbi? Rav Cook, who died in 1935. Who Paskin no. They'll use him when it's convenient for them. They'll, they'll, they'll like, you know, parade him out when they want to, like at Hebrew University, and put him away when they're done. Um, he's considered their spiritual figurehead. Um, there have been great rabbis. It's not like they're lacking world-class Chomim, but none who've, who've, who've um, had that kind of authority. Uh, I mean, it's different in the modern Orthodox world, but not to so different since Rav Soloveitchik passed away. Um, Rav Schechter, I remember being in his shir, he's a world-class Talmud Chacham, he could be, he could be the guttle of the modern Orthodox world, and yet, he'll get phone calls with simple shilas and kashrus that any congregational rabbi can paskin, but when it comes to some of the more controversial issues of the, of the day, they'll often go to their con congregational rabbi who's telling the people what the people want to hear. It's a, often a religion of the people, by the people. When they didn't like YU, when the liberal modern Orthodox didn't like YU, well, they up and founded their own uh, rabbinic seminary under, under Rabbi Avi Weiss. And, it's, and there, too, it's a rabbinic seminary of the board of directors by the board of directors. Where, you know, they're, they're the true authority. <clears throat> Some would say he's closest to what we call Hardal, the Haredi Lumi, the serious, halakhically, um, very, very high-level... Uh, Hardal, uh, uh, nationalistic religious force, um, and that he, he certainly was critical of modern, modern elements in the Mizrahi that they overly embrace secular ideology. Others say, no, if Rav Cook were alive today, he'd be mainline Haredi. Based on so much of what he said, and he'd see what happened. Wait, so why don't they teach him, <coughs> even, even with reservation and like understanding the situation from a more complex perspective, why don't they teach him what? Why don't they teach his books at yeshiva? In our yeshiva? Yeah. 
I think because I think because of everything that's associated with. Because once you, let's say, learn the books, de facto people understand you're endorsing the overall picture, and then it's tricky because you know if you're in a place with a certain hashkafa or Samantha doesn't make a, doesn't make a secret of its hashkafa. Um, doesn't believe in this stuff. I mean, I don't either. And I'm trying to articulate why it's not coming from hatred or superiority or anything. I just don't think it's right. I don't think it fits. So if I, if I start teaching this book, and the, the books are amazing, but if I start teaching it, so then I'm encouraging my students to go that way. I don't, you know, if, in my, if I could be influenced, I'd like to influence towards what I believe is endless. Are you able you really to learn the I have, but I, I was in, see, I, I mean, I, I, when I was at YU, I dabbled a little bit, then I was in a kolel, Meretz kolel in the Mibaseretzion, where uh, Rav Kook was certainly, I mean, it's a Hardal place, and they certainly revered him. Uh, the, the Rosh Hashiv Karim Biyavne lives in Mibaseret, or Greenberg, and, and, and is an authority on Rav Kook's writings. And so certainly it came up, and I, I can't claim to have learned it because it's on such a lofty level. I, I, can say, I can say more, more accurately, I was present when there were shirim given on Rav Kook's ideas, and I, I sat there with my mouth hanging open. In 1912, backing up a little bit, um, the Agudas Israel political organization was founded. Um, Till, till today, I and mean, it's an extension of what we call United Torah Judaism, but it, its goal was to preserve tradition, um, recognizing that new movements, new modernity was, uh, was changing everything, and that now the Torah world needed its own political voice to counter all these other voices that were out there. Uh, it enjoyed the blessing of the Chafetz Chaim. It was led by Rav Chaim Moshe Gazinsky, major Torah figures, but not just. It was also led by Rav Avram Mordechai Alter, the son of the Sfas Emes, the, the Gera Rebbe, uh, Rav Chaim Brisker, Rav Meir Simcha Dvinsk, who's the Or Semach that we met at the of this class, uh, Rav Shlomo Zalman Breuer of Frankfurt, Rav David Zvi Hoffman, if you remember, was the first with a PhD to take on the biblical critics. Um, so that you have actually, if you know these figures, quite a broad spectrum from fairly liberal, Rav Zabtzvi Hoffman was perceived as semi-liberal as a Jew as the Rav in Germany, uh, all the way to less liberal and East, Eastern European Rabbanim. Um, and, and the Agudis Israel literally was an Agudah, was, was, was binding them all together under one umbrella. The Aguda was absolutely distinct from the Mizrahi. There was, there was the Mizrahi and then there was the Aguda. And today again we have our own modernized equivalents of these. Um, but the Aguda specifically singled out in the Mizrahi their penchant for align, aligning themselves with the secular Zionists. Um, they felt, they, they said that the, that the Mizrahi was naive to think that they could influence from within without being influenced themselves. They rejected the idea that if you establish a Jewish state, that it will solve the Jewish problem. And they go further. It's interesting, in some of the original writings of the Guda, they assumed that the efforts to establish a Jewish state um, before all Jews had returned to Torah would be marked by the hostility of the nations of the world, which seems to have been accurate. Um, till today, and ever, if, if, if anything stronger, stronger than ever today, the nations of the world are unified about very few things, but one of them is their anti-Israel ide ideology. Um, briefly, before where, where's the world before World War One? Tomorrow we're going to get into World War One. Briefly, um, at the outbreak of World War One, the Jewish population in the world stood at 13.5 million, um, which was a major growth. A century earlier, there were 2.5 million Jews. So in, in, within within a, a century, they had um, they had increased almost fivefold. We're doing, we're doing some demographics again on the foot on the eve of, of World War One. 13.5 million, interestingly, around the number where the Jewish population world hovers today. So how is it possible that we didn't grow uh, more than the Shoah assimilation intermarriage? Yeah? Is, how much of that number of 13.5 million is Orthodox Jewry, and how much of it is not religious? It's uh, at this point in history? And, 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 and before World War One, yeah. um, the numbers are not clear as much as they're not clear today. Because how do you define Orthodox? How do you, you go around? Think about the Derek um, student body. This guy's Orthodox. That's I mean, we have quite a range of people 
from very, very sincerely Yirei Shemaim to guys who are on, very much on the edge and everything in between. And that's, that's also, it's, a, it's one of those loose things. However, considerably more from then than are today. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hazard a guess. I don't think there are any studies to, to, to back this up one way or the other, but I would assert that um, up to 50% of world Jewry had at least some bonds with something orthodox. You know, they were, they were, yeah, they identified as such, even if they were Mahal Shabbos, it was some rain. Certainly it was, it was, it was, um, uh, within the Sephardi world, I'm going to talk about now, but the Sephardi world, uh, very, very from, and in the Ashkenazi world, not that many generations removed. Even if they were Maskilim, but their great-grandparents, they still remembered the Yiddish, they understood the, the, the traditions. Today the assimilation is so many generations removed that they, they don't, the people know nothing. Now, um, Nine million of these Jews lived in Europe. So the overwhelming majority of the Jews in the world were indeed Ashkenazi, partly explaining till today the strong influence of the Ashkenazi, even though many would be wiped out. Um, about one million Jews, slightly more, lived under Muslim rule. And I, I'll give you the demographics now, but tomorrow we'll start talking about the, the, um, the this, what are usually called the Sephardi Jews, which is misleading, but the Eidor de Mizrach, um, who lived under Muslim rule, the largest group um, collectively was in the Maghreb. Maghreb is a term that's used to describe, right, exactly, North African Jews, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Mauritania, about, five, about half a million. About half a million lived there. Uh, the next most numerous before World War I, 120,000 um, uh, Jews lived in Iraq. 100,000 were Persian, what we call Iran today. 80,000 were in Egypt. Egypt is almost non-existent. The Egyptian Jewish community is almost non-existent today. 60,000 Jews in Yemen, and then the rest scattered in places like Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, and then, of course, the Ottoman Empire, uh, which is about to implode. Yeah, what were you going to say? Hand up? No? Okay. So tomorrow, because we I don't want to keep it too late, and we're going to talk about these Jews, what we call often Sephardi Jews, in these various lands, and uh, where they're holding on the eve of World War I, and then we'll get to World War I and its aftermath.